Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those precious truths. And we pray that you would help us to steadily, continually live for your smile, to see it in the highs and lows of life, to see that you are steady and immovable, that your face, because of Christ, always shines in favor on your children. So Lord, help us. Help us as we come to worship you this morning. Help us to understand your word and help us, Lord, to live today in light of the truths that we will see in this wonderful commissioning of your people. And Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. This is um, morning. We come to our second sermon in chapter 6. And we're looking specifically at verses 7 to 13. There are some missions in life that seem impossible. And not too long ago, Savannah and I were sick, and we decided that we would watch a, a documentary, which is something we, we like to do together. And there was a documentary that caught our eye on Point du Hoc, which during World War II was a German military base located on a steep cliff overlooking the beaches of Normandy. Before American troops were able to storm the beaches in 1944, a small group of U.S. Army Rangers were commissioned to go ahead of them and to scale the 100-foot cliffs and dismantle the German coastal guns that would have otherwise devastated the troops that were landing on the beaches of Normandy. So on June 6, 1944, this small band of Army Rangers against all odds really scaled the cliffs of Point du Hoc with grappling hooks and ropes and seized these massive guns, defeated the German defense, and completed their objective. Now what struck me about this as we watched it was why in the world would they be so crazy to do that in the first place? I mean, it seemed like this was a mission that was doomed to fail. And it hit me as we watched that despite the odds, these men knew exactly what they had to do. There was no question. They had to do what they had to do. And because of that, they carried out their objective. They understood the seriousness of the mission and the magnitude of what was required of them. And because of that, they acted with courage and accomplished their mission. Now, we see something very similar to this in our text this morning. The Lord is going to task these 12 very ordinary men and commission them to carry out a mission that seems virtually impossible. 12 normal men being sent out by Jesus to represent Him. But remember, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, they're not being sent out uh, in, a, you know, in, in peacetime, if you will. They're being sent out in hostile territory. They're being sent out behind enemy lines, if you will. Jesus has been rejected by the most powerful people in Judaism. He's been declared by them to be a false teacher. And not only that, but to be in collusion with the devil himself. And most recently, we've seen that Jesus, in a place where you would expect the people to welcome him, goes and he preaches in his hometown, and they even reject him. And so this is, from a human perspective, not going in the favor of Jesus and his disciples. And at this point, or rather, sorry, in the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 10, as Jesus is commissioning the twelve, what we're going to look at in Mark, he's commissioning them, commissioning them in Matthew 10, and he looks at them, and this is what he says. I just listen to this kind of mission, okay? As you go out, he says, Matthew 10, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. 
Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. And whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. That's verse 17, 18, 21, 22, 23. Now all of that is a pretty um, bleak prospect for accomplishing the objective that Jesus is going to give them. And in a way, really, of summarizing all of it, he says it this way. Jesus looks at them and he says, it's kind of like this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I talk about Mission Impossible. Wolves beat sheep every time. But I'm sending you out, says Jesus, as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's the best analogy you know, I can come up with, says the Lord. It was an assignment that was virtually impossible. So it would have been daunting. So that's what I want you to feel as we sort of go into this passage. That this is not, okay, yeah, let's go. We can do this. This is a daunting assignment. This is something that looks like there is no hope of success. But what we see in our text this morning is that along with the commission, the Lord sends out His people. This is what the Lord always does. He sends out His people, but He always gives them sufficient provisions to accomplish the assignment, and He always gives them a clear mission to guide them as they carry it out. That's what we're going to look at this morning from our passage. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? We'll read beginning in verse 6 down through verse 13. Mark 6, beginning in verse 6. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Verse 7. And Jesus, he, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You may be seated. It's the second part of verse 6 that sets up the context for us here. After Jesus had been rejected by the people of Nazareth, beginning of verse 6, he wonders at their unbelief. And then the second part of verse 6 says that he was going around the villages teaching. So he leaves Nazareth, he goes around, sort of in a preaching circuit, around the region of Galilee. And somewhere along the way, we're not told when, uh, but Matthew tells us in the parallel account, and I'm going to reference the parallel account to this several times throughout this sermon. Matthew 10 is the parallel account. Matthew tells us that Jesus, at some point, he looks out at these crowds who are coming to hear him teach. He looks out at them, and he says that Jesus felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, he pitied them. And he recognized that these people who were coming in droves to hear him teach had been largely neglected by the people who had been assigned to be their shepherds. And so here he is going on a preaching circuit around Galilee. All the people are coming to him and he looks at them and he realizes, he knows, that these people have been neglected by their shepherds and he knows they're in need and he looks at them and he sees that they're misguided they've been improperly fed and he looks at them with compassion you know something that's really amazing to me here is that in the face of all the need that's in front of him he doesn't panic he doesn't complain about the guys who came before him they messed all this up, now I've got to deal with all this stuff. 
He doesn't rush around to try, try to take care of it all in a moment. But you know what he did? You can look if you want to turn to Matthew 9, 36. This leads up to the context of verse, or chapter 10. He looks at the need. He pities them. And in Matthew 9, 37... It says that Jesus looked at his disciples and said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's the problem. It's not those people that messed these people up. Right? It's, not all, it's not their fault. Right now, the problem is that the harvest is so abundant and plentiful, but the laborers are so few. And everyone can look at the problem and say, Look, these people need help. But there are so few people who are willing to put on their work gloves and bring in the harvest. And what the Lord says next, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, get to work. Let's go. No. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Isn't that something? That's the solution. Here's the big problem. It's bigger than you can, you know, than we can handle at this very moment. Of course, Jesus could have healed it all and fixed it all in a word. But the problem is that the harvest is so plentiful and the workers are so few. So the solution is pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the need was real, but Jesus was teaching these men a very important lesson. And that was not to fret in light of the magnitude of what was in front of them. Don't fret about it, but go to the Father and request help. Request more laborers. And in Matthew's account, the very next verse picks up with the commissioning of the twelve. That's not accidental. In a very real sense, the commissioning of the twelve in Matthew 10 and Mark 6 is the Lord's answer to the prayer for more laborers in the harvest. These 12 men have been drafted by Jesus, appointed as His representatives, and now, in answer to the Father's prayer, or the Father's, in answer to the prayer that has been issued to the Father, Lord, send more laborers for the harvest. These men are going to be sent out to do the work. And as we've seen, this is a daunting mission, sheep in the midst of wolves. It's challenging, it's hostile. And so because of that, these men are going to need all the encouragement that they can get in order to press on and accomplish their goal. And so, back in Mark's account, Mark chapter 6, the first thing that Jesus does for these men, in light of the daunting sort of task that He's laying out before them, is that He assures them, in verses 7 to 10, he assures them of their divine provisions. He assures them of their provisions. Look at verse 7. Mark 6 and verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Now there are at least three provisions that we see in verses 7 to 10. The first provision is that the Lord, in, in, on this mission He's sending them out on, He provides them with a companion. That's the first part of verse 7. They're sent out in pairs, or two by two. Now, why is that? Well, fundamentally, we could say, as I'm arguing here, that it's for companionship, friendship, help. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 9, says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And this was the wisdom, I mean, this is, biblical wisdom, and this was the wisdom that the early Christians followed. John the Baptist sent out his disciples in pairs, 
See that in Luke 7? Jesus does it here, and he does it on several other occasions. He doesn't just send one guy or lady off to go do work. He sends them in pairs. And the early church, the book of Acts, Acts 13, 15, and 19, we see the same practice. They don't go off you know, as sort of lone rangers to, to accomplish the task. They're coupled with a companion. And of course, the wisdom there is that they wouldn't be alone as they're in the trenches. And what's striking to me, and what's really neat to think about, is that Jesus is helping these men and providing for them, but He's not doing it in some mystical way. He's not sort of opening the clouds, descending and giving them the comfort and the help that they're going to need as they go on their journey. He's providing help for them through the means of another brother in Christ. He gives them another brother to stand beside as they face their challenges. And I I think certainly there's just a a lesson there. Sometimes we pray, God help me, I'm in trouble. We sort of wait around and we hope that God's going to do something, you know, like split the Red Sea or, you know, something's going to fall out of heaven, you know, on our heads so we see it. The reality is God stands ready to help. And part of the way that he helps his people individually is through the ordinary means of grace, through his word and through his church, through you and I. And here, these men are coupled together with another helper. And they have to have, really, in one sense, the humility to be with another brother and not to just say, I'll do it on my own, I can handle it all by myself, which is what some of us struggle with. We want to just do it all by ourselves, we don't need help. Uh, But the Lord couples these men together so that they can accomplish the mission and so that they're helped along the way. But there's another element here to being sent out in pairs that's significant, and it's this. The second person would serve as a witness to confirm the judgment on these cities who did not believe. We see that come into play in verse 11. We see... The Lord says, you know, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. All right, so this was uh, the, the witness, the other brother that was with them would serve as a second witness to the judgment on this town. And we'll spend some time thinking about that when we get to verse 11. But right now, we need to see that God had established in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19.15, that verdicts were to be established only on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so this other guy is going to help, help him, help the other brother, these two guys together rather, are going to help one another as they are in the trenches doing the battle, but they're also going to be there with one another as a co-witness of the judgment that will come on unbelief. So that's the first provision. A partner, friend, someone to be with you in the midst of it. But there's a second provision at the end of verse 7. And he began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's the provision of authority. It's important for us to realize that these men were not going out under their own banner. They were going out as apostles, as official representatives of Christ. And because of that, they were being endowed with a very special entrustment of authority from our Lord. They were to go out and they were to be Christ to the people they would encounter. That's what it means at this level to be a delegate, apostle, or representative. So it's so much so. I mean, their identities are so sort of interwoven here that Jesus says in Matthew 10 40, whoever receives you as you go out, Whoever receives you, receives me. And so these men were representing Jesus at the highest level. And they were his ambassadors. It's as if Christ were in them working out his mission. And because of that, they were given an authority that was delegated. They didn't have it innate in themselves. This was divine authority that was entrusted to them so that they could go out and expand the mission of the Messiah. Remember, Jesus looks at the crowds. He has compassion. 
We need harvesters. We need laborers for the harvest. Okay, here's what the plan is. Send these 12 men out as my official representatives. And I'm going to give them authority that will verify, authenticate them and their message. Remember, we've spent some time looking at this in Mark 1. That this authority over demons, and as we'll see really in verse 13, it extends to sickness as well. This authority was given in order to authenticate the apostles as they proclaimed the message of the gospel. All right, so the, the miraculous here, the authority over demons and over sicknesses, it was a, a way of authenticating the message and the messenger of the gospel. So to put that another way, Jesus doesn't just say, okay, go climb, go scale that cliff, and I hope it goes well with you. Oh, I've given you another guy to go with you as you scale the cliff and try to do the impossible. Oh, and here's a gun. It doesn't have bullets. But go, I hope it goes well for you. What Jesus is doing here with the authority issue, and this is a, a weak analogy, but it's like he's saying, here's a gun, and the authority, here's the gun, here's the message. And the authority is the bullet, right? The, the authority over demons and the sick, of sickness and all of that is a way of saying what you're doing has power and authority. It's right. It's from heaven itself. So God's not just saying, go out there, I hope it goes well for you. He's giving them the provision of another brother, and he's giving them a remarkable authority and a power by which they can do things that they could never have done before. And you remember when they come back, I think this is later on in the Gospel of Matthew, when they come back, remember what they say. Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. They're shocked at this. This is amazing. And Jesus picks up on their tendency towards pride and he says, hold on. Look, I saw Satan fall from heaven all right, over something about like what you're excited about. All right, this sort of pride, this sort of look at all I can do. This is wonderful. Hold, pump the brakes here, buddy. All right, don't, don't get too big-headed. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, here is authority. I'm giving it to you as you go out and do what seems to be impossible. I'm going to give you this authority to authenticate your message. And then there's a third thing Jesus provides, and that's he provides these men with a promise. He provides them with help. He provides them with authenticating authority. And then he provides them with a promise. And that's in verses 8 to 10. Now some of you are looking down there and thinking, wait, 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 wait. I don't see a promise there. And you're right to do that. There, there isn't an explicit promise. But I think there's an implicit promise and I hope to, to point that out to you. Because you know, on the surface, at least, it looks like a bunch of restrictions. Don't do this. Don't bring this. But I'll, I'll hopefully will persuade you that there's a promise there. Look at verse 8. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey. All right? Mission impossible. Oh, yeah, by the way, don't take anything with you. That's comprehensive. Very clear. But Jesus knows these men, and he knows us. Now, he knows that they're probably thinking about what you and I would think. Oh, yeah, yeah, we won't take anything except our backpacks full of stuff, except a couple of pairs of clothes, and maybe it's another set of shoes. Yeah, I, we know what you mean, don't take anything. Yeah, we, won't, we won't take anything. We'll just, we'll pack light. And so Jesus, he, he gets very specific so that they get that he's being very literal. He goes on. Take nothing for your journey. No bread. That's referring to food, of course. And that right there is enough for some of us to say, all right, I think I'm going to skip this one out. I'll miss this one. No bread, no bag, you know, which would have been a bag um, that a normal traveler would have carried to have their supplies in. And then he says, no money in your belt. Now that probably would be sufficient for all of us to say, uh, I don't know about this one. But basically he's saying, when I say don't bring anything on your journey, I, that's what I mean. Don't bring anything. Don't pack a lunch. Don't pack a bag. And don't even bring your wallet. Leave it all at home. There's no doubt that Jesus is being literal here. All they needed, verse 8, 
was a staff, which was just a walking stick, kind of a, a thinner version of the shepherd's rod. They didn't need to bring the big, thick, hefty rod to fight off wolves or bad guys. They just needed a, a sort of a, a slender walking stick. Uh, the clothes on their back. That's the point of verse 9. Do not put on two tunics. Our travelers would often double up like you know, their undershirt, the, the garment that was worn closest to their body. They would double up there. So they would have a change of clothes. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't do that either. You just need to bring the clothes that are on your back, the sandals on your feet, and a walking stick. That's all you need. I'll take care of the rest. Now, I should say here, uh, some people have struggled with the fact that in Matthew's account, some of you may have noticed that in this in Matthew's account, Jesus tells them not to wear sandals at all. At least that's what it seems to say. Uh, which would be a contradiction uh, to Mark 6 and verse 9. But to wear sandals is what he told them. And also in Luke and Matthew, Jesus told the twelve not to even take a staff. Uh, so it appears that these two things are contradictory. But they're really not contradictory because... You need to think about the emphasis here. What is the emphasis? The emphasis is on excess. Right? The emphasis in Mark and the other Gospels is that they shouldn't double up. Don't take two pair of sandals. Don't take extra walking sticks. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take food. Don't take anything beyond what you basically need. The shoes on your feet, clothes on your back, and the walking stick. That's all you need. Okay. So he's essentially saying don't carry two of those things. Just carry the basic minimal requirements, things that you can carry um, on your person. Now here's the question. Why is Jesus doing this? Why do you send someone, a group of men, on a mission like this and say, oh, and by the way, don't carry anything with you? What is he doing? Why is he stripping them of all, thing, all the things that a normal traveler would rest and depend on? What's going on here? Well, it's this. Jesus strips them of all these normal things a traveler would depend on so that they would place their confidence in Him. Jesus doesn't want them to find their comfort, their assurance, or their confidence in their own physical preparation for the mission. He wants them to carry out this mission with full and utter dependence on the Father. He already said, look, here's this huge need in front of us. Look at all these people. Look at this harvest. All right, here's what you need to do. You know they're saying, okay, look, here's what we can do, Lord. I can take this group, you take this group. You know, and it's, they're trying to solve this problem of all the harvest being so full. It's just like what we would do. And Jesus says, no, you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest, which is the Father. And here he's teaching them, look, Leave it all behind, and I want you to learn to trust the Father, which, by the way, is prerequisite for being a faithful servant of the Lord. You've got to learn to live in utter dependence upon the providence and the promise of God if you were going to serve the Lord. In one sense, this is very much like God's call to Abram. Right? I mean, Abram is in Ur. The Lord comes to him, and the Lord makes a promise to him. I'm going to bless you and make you great. Now, Abram's roots were deep in Ur. It would have been a hard thing for him to sort of get up and go. But God says to him, look, I'm going to do all these great things for you, and here's what I want for you, Abram. I want you to leave your country and your kindred and go to the land I will show you. Now, if it's you or I, we're saying, okay, can I see the survey of that land? Has it been appraised properly? You know, what are the coordinates? You know, let me find out where it is so I can see if I want to venture out on that or not. But that's not what Abram does. Despite the missing details, that's ordinary, reasonable to want to know. 
Abram leans all of his weight onto the promise of God. And he obeys God regardless of the details because he trusts God to provide what he needs. And that is what faith does. It abandons sinful autonomy and self-reliance and it rests all its weight on the promise of God. But you don't get there by accident. It's reasonable for you to say, let me see the servant. Let me carry a heavy bag. This is going to be a, a really important mission. I need to bring this thing and that thing. And so what the Lord does in His grace is He trains us to live in dependency upon Him, which is what He's doing with these 12 men. Jesus is stripping them of the crutches that they would otherwise lean on so that they would realize the folly of self-sufficiency and be forced to throw themselves on God's providence and God's provision. So the promise here then, remember I said there was a promise here. It's not explicit. It's implicit. And it's the promise that God will take care of His people. That's the promise. He will be with them to help them, to provide for them through the ordinary means He's appointed. He's promised to provide them a friend, a brother to stand beside them. He's promised authenticating authority that they would need, and that would come to them through the power of the Spirit. He promises to provide the food, the clothing, the lodging that they need, all of that through the hospitality of other believers. And Jesus is trying to get them to a place where they're going to say, okay, that sounds great. Let's do it. Like Abram, where he says, yeah, I'll leave. Let's go. But these brothers are not quite there yet. So Jesus has to be very specific, and he has to point his finger, you know, put it on the nerve, as it were, and say, okay, here are the things you're depending on. Leave that. Leave this. Leave this. Leave this. I'm sending you out here so that you will learn to do what I call you to do. It's kind of like my grandfather told me the way that he learned to swim. Some of you learned to swim this way too. Your brothers call you out to the end of the dock and they say, okay, you want to learn how to swim? Yeah, boom, go swim. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, I'm going to strip you of all the things you would depend on here so that you'll be forced to trust me. And friends, some of you are there right now. Right? Some of you have been stripped of all the things that you would otherwise lean on in your life. The things that you love, things that you found so much comfort in, like the child with its blanket. And the Lord lovingly, He's not being cruel to you, but He takes the blanket away. Why? So that you can learn to live your life in dependence upon Him, not on these little crutches that we think we need to survive. So here then, the Lord is pushing these men out of the nest, as it were, commissioning them to go preach the gospel of salvation. And he tells them, don't take anything with you, but just trust that the Father, the Lord of the harvest, will provide all that you need. And what's amazing is that all of these men, except for Judas, of course, learned the lesson. And they don't learn it immediately. Right? We're just in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see that they don't learn quickly. But they do learn. They especially learn after the resurrection. But they're slow to get this. Just like you and I are slow to learn the kind of dependency that's requisite to be a faithful servant. It reminds us that learning in Christ's school is not a one and done thing. It's not one lecture and then you get it. Right? It's, it's incremental. We don't learn all that we should from the first lesson. And this really is just the first time these, these guys are being sent out. Now, they're going to get the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel, after the resurrection. This is just the initial trial run for them. And the Lord is helping them to learn in His school so that they will live in greater dependency upon Him and, and trust that He will provide all their needs. Now, let me say one more thing here. They're learning to trust that Jesus will provide all their needs. Now, what are they putting in their bags? You know, as Jesus is saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. They're going to put in things they think they need, right? The same thing you or I would do. I need my wallet. I need some food. Right, these are basic things that I need. But what we learn here is that often what we think we need is actually no need at all, right? 
And these men are needing to learn here that what they need is simply to trust God for his provision. It's a lesson we all have to learn over and over again. And they also needed to learn not just to trust God for his provision, but to be content with it, which I think is a lot of our issue. We know God's provided X, Y, or Z. He's provided us a house that's sufficient, but we just want a little bigger one. Or a car that you know, gets us from point A to point B. Of course, it smokes up the whole neighborhood, but it gets us there. But we have to learn to trust God for his need, but also to be content with what he's provided. And of course, he gives us ways to you know, fix the car. I'm not saying don't go take your car to the shop. Uh, but what I'm saying here is that the Lord promises to give us what we need, and we need to be content with what he provides. And that's verse 10, actually. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. So he's going to provide for them a place to stay. That's the implication through the hospitality of, of believers. But they, when they get there, they need to be content with wherever they land. Some of them are going to land in nice quarters. Some of them are going to land in a shack. But they need to be content with where they are. He says, stay there until you leave. He knows them, and he knows that their tendency was going to be to jump around looking for an upgrade in their lodging. Oh, Peter's over here. John's over here. Look, let's work this out. How about, I'll, I'll give you this for this. And Jesus says, no, wherever you go, stay put and be content with where you are. And the reason for that is so that they would not be focused on scaling up but so that they would be focused on accomplishing the mission that God had given them to accomplish. If you fix your eyes on all the things, all the ways you want to get better, all the ways you want to increase uh, your life on earth, you're going to be pulled away from the mission God gives. Seek first His kingdom, and then what? All these other things will be added to you. This is a lesson that Jesus is teaching. So anyway, that's the Lord's provision. In verses 7 to 10, it's a thorough provision, it's robust, it's comprehensive, it's sufficient. And these men have to venture out in faith and trust that it will meet their need. And then they need to be content with whatever it is that the Lord gives them. And moving on, verse 11, we start to see not only the Lord's provision for these men, but we see that He clarifies the mission for them. And He lays it out in such a way that it will guide them as they carry out their objective. And I just want to point out two features of the mission for you. The first thing we see about the Lord's mission is in verse 11. And it's this. And we see how utterly serious the mission is. Now look at verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now you see why he's saying, look, stop thinking about upgrading where you're staying. What we're dealing with is of utter, absolute significance. Now what does he mean here, though? Shaking the dust off your feet. Well, it was a common practice for Jewish people as they traveled and as they were leaving a Gentile city for them to shake the dust off of their feet because they didn't want even the dust of a pagan city contaminating them or them bringing that dust from a pagan city into the holy city of Jerusalem. And so this was a sort of symbol. It became a symbol of disdain. And in another sense, it became a symbol of judgment, which I think is the the way to understand it here. It's a symbol for judgment. And for the disciples to do this, to carry out this gesture, would indicate that the people in this city have not only rejected the Lord, but they themselves were completely rejected as well. Now that seems like a strong statement, but I want to show you why I'm saying that. It's very heavy, very serious, very sober. Matthew's account, Matthew 10, verses 12 to 15 really heightens the intensity of this. It's not just dust the dust or shake the dust off the soles of your feet. 
it's, it's actually more significant and more sober. If you look at Matthew 10, verse 10. Jesus says this, as you, or verse 12, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. And look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now that's a sober statement. Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll remember, thorough, thoroughly pagan city. It was so wicked that God judged it really without warning. And he sort of wiped, not sort of, he literally wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth because of the height of its wickedness. And Jesus says here that on the day of judgment, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will receive, this is striking, will receive a lesser sentence than the people who reject Jesus' official representatives. It tells us a few things. This verse, this reality, tells us a few things. First, it tells us that one of the greatest sins anyone can commit in the sight of God is not homosexuality, it's not adultery, not lack of hospitality. Those are the sort of things that are highlighted for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is not the greatest sin in the sight of God. The greatest sin that a man can commit in the sight of God is to hear the gospel of Christ and to not believe it. Which reminds me of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 28 where the writer is establishing the superiority of Christ and he confronts those living in unrepentant sin they were living, away, they were living their lives in a way that contradicted what they said they believed. And this is what the writer says, verse 28, Hebrews 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment Do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, there, it seems as if they were sort of saying, yeah, God was really harsh on unbelief in the Old Testament, but now we're in the New Covenant. Praise God we're in the New Covenant. God will take it a little lighter on us for our unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. You think God was harsh on sin in the Old Testament? How much more do you think He's going to punish sin when it's against the Son of God, who came as a demonstration of His love for you, and you look at it, you spit on it, and you trample the cross under your feet. How much higher do you think the judgment will be on those who do that? So don't think, oh, we're in the new covenant. Well, God will be merciful. Jesus has come. No, friend. It's heightened. The level of seriousness of your sin against God is higher than you can ever imagine. And this passage, this warning here, shows us that God takes your unbelief utterly serious. Especially when you have been in a situation where you have heard the gospel over and over and over. R.C. Sproul put it this way. There is no such thing as indifference to Christ. You are for Him or against Him. In the kingdom of God, there is no neutral ground. In the church today, we, when we do mass evangelism, the standard technique is to offer an invitation after the sermon. We say something like, as many as would like to respond to Christ, come now. However, we do not usually add, as many as would not like to respond to Christ, 
go to hell. But the gospel is a two-edged sword. If we receive it, the benefit is eternal life. But if we reject it, we do so to our everlasting peril. And that's the point Jesus is making here. That, that what we are dealing with is the everlasting state of souls that will live forever pardoned and forgiven because Christ took hell for them or will live forever taking the punishment in hell that their sins deserve. So all this reminds us that the times in which we live, this new epic of redemptive history, Christ has come, has died, lived, we preach the gospel. It's not a lighter season than the Old Covenant. It's not as if things have changed in regards to truth and righteousness. In fact, it's heightened now. The urgency is elevated. Because there's greater judgment on those who hear the gospel and reject it than there was in the past. So all of our ministry ought to match the earnestness of the hour. The disciples then needed to realize that the work they were doing was utterly significant and serious. And the same is true for us. We deal with men and women who have eternal souls. And their eternal state depends on how they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the present. And I think if we properly understood that reality, it would change the way we go about ministry in the present. It would give us an earnestness for sure in evangelism, We'd be more eager if we, if we truly believe that this person has a soul that will live forever. We would see the urgency of the task. But it also would change, I think this is a little bit of a critique of contemporary evangelical society. And I don't want to stand here and critique everybody else when we have our own struggles that we need to deal with. But I think it should be said that this passage is a critique really of contemporary evangelical tendencies that are glib and superficial. And this sort of brings a, a sobriety to the work we do. And when you compare what Jesus says here to some of the things you see in society, in so-called evangelicalism, you're left thinking, are you reading the same Bible as us? I mean, just this week, let me give you an example. Just this week, I was told of a church that dressed up their pastors as Mario and Luigi and taught a series based on the Super Mario movie. What in the world are we doing? What are we doing? The way you convey the message either conveys integrity and, and reality or superficiality and, and you're conveying something that I shouldn't even listen to. And that's the sort of thing that this these kind of antics convey that it's not really that serious. God will be gracious. This is the new covenant. Don't worry about following Jesus. Let's just have fun. Eat your popcorn. Eat your candy. This is summer at the theater. But what Jesus is telling these men is that that is not the way you go about ministry. You don't go about it lighthearted and superficial. I'm not saying be sober and cry, wear black all the time, always you know, cover your head with... You know, wear sackcloth cloth and ashes. That's not the point. But the, you can be joyfully serious when you're talking to people about the gospel. And that's the sort of tone that we need. And Jesus is setting his men straight here. And he's saying, look, if you're going to go preach the gospel message to these people, you need to do so not as a way for you to have a vacation here where you're looking for the best place to stay. But you do it in a way that recognizes the sobriety of the moment. And if people do not listen to the message you preach, you wipe the dirt off your feet, get out of that city, and don't go back because they have condemned themselves. And they are thus left to suffer the consequences 
of their rejection. That's so far removed from the way that we often think about evangelism. I'm not saying you share the gospel once and you never go back. But what I'm saying, and what I think Jesus is teaching here, is that we ought to carry about in ourselves the same urgency and seriousness about the gospel and about eternity that we see in this passage. The faithful servant must take the message and the mission of our Lord serious and not make it a point of entertainment, not just something about public speaking, not just a casual exercise. It ought to be earnest. Every time we share the gospel, we have to realize that souls are in the balance. So, that's the seriousness of the mission. But look then now at verse 12. That's where we see the heart of the mission itself. Verse 12, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now that's the heart of the mission. It was the authoritative pronouncement that the king has come and his kingdom is now at hand. And it was time for everyone to repent. It's the message that Jesus preached back in chapter 1 of Mark in verse 15. And it's summarized, though, interestingly, it's summarized in verse 12 as this. They preached that men should repent. In the context, a parallel account in Matthew 10, we see that the Lord told these men to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's a very narrow focus. This was a pointed call to Israel to turn from their pattern of crucifying and killing the prophets and bow and receive the Messiah that God had sent to them. And what we see in verse 13, they proclaimed the message and then they were confirming that message as they cast out demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, incidentally, Jesus never does that. Jesus never anoints people with oil here. Oil, of course, was a medicinal way in which uh, the ancient world would treat sicknesses. But here it's not so much a medicinal use. It's representative, I think, of the Spirit of God, representative of God's authority. So they would put the oil on the person, and they would heal them, and then they would cast out demons. All of that, as I've mentioned is just a way to confirm that these men were God's appointed messengers for that moment. And so then the question is, why did they preach repentance? Why, why is it summarized as repentance? Of course, I just said that it's, it has to do with calling Israel from their pattern of crucifying, killing their prophets. But fundamentally, it's this. It's a call for men and women and children to bow to Jesus and trust his gospel and follow him. That's what it is. That's what the preaching of repentance is about. It's the call to men, women, boys and girls to turn from living in their own, in their own way and bow to Christ. And of course, we preach that message today. And let me just clarify this really quickly. The reality of humanity, this is true of each one of us, is that we all, by nature, live our lives against God. This is how you were born. You didn't choose it. This is just how you were born. You were born in hostility against God. Ephesians 2 tells us that. Psalm 50, Psalm 51, we see... Sin is endemic. It's part of who we are as fallen creatures. And our sinful default is for us to live as if, as if we are the kings of our own sort of delusional kingdom. That's the way we live. We like to think that we're in charge of our own lives, that we know best. We live 
to please ourselves. We live for ourselves. We repeatedly follow our own wisdom and understanding. We exalt ourselves above God. We sort of put Him in the dock, as it were, and we're the judge over Him. Well, I don't know if I want to follow you. I don't know if, if I like what you said here or there. That's a delusion. It's, it's you pretending to be bigger than God. And that's our sinful default. And it's exactly what the people of Israel did as well, which is why they killed the people who came and preached the truth to them. But because of that reality, we all deserve the wrath of God. Because we have rebelled against Him. R.C. Sproul said, our sin is cosmic treason. And that's true. We have rebelled against Him. We exalt ourselves above God and we live our own way. But the gospel message is this, that God looks at you in your treason, in your delusion, in your rebellion, and He doesn't wipe you off the face of the earth, but because of His love, He sends His Son into the world to suffer and die in the place of everyone who would turn from the delusion of lordship over themselves and come underneath the lordship of Christ and trust Him, believe Him, follow Him. And that is what repentance is. It's a turn. It's the turn that you make from self-satisfaction, self-righteousness, to a righteousness that is outside of you and in Christ. It's the righteousness, it's the turn to receive from Christ what I could never receive from my own efforts. It's the turn from being the Lord of my own life into bowing to Christ as the Lord and following Him. And it's a life that follows Jesus. This is repentance. Repentance unto salvation, initial turn from my sin, from the Lordship of my life to Christ. But it's not a one and done thing. Repentance is steady and ongoing in the life of a believer. And we turn from living as the Lords of our own life and we follow the King. And we follow Him wherever He leads. And the beauty of this passage is that when we turn to follow Him, we're promised and we see that He sends us all the provisions we need to carry out what He calls us to do. It's wonderful. He meets us in our hour of need. He provides all that we could ask for. And He helps us carry out our assignments. Not only that, He gives us very basic, clear objectives. He doesn't go to these men and say, now look, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, now it's on you to reap it all. That would have crushed them. No, He doesn't tell them, "All right, now it's on you, go save the world. That's not what the Lord does. He strips them of all that they would depend on, He robs them of all their earthly crutches. He exhorts them to take their mission seriously. And He tells them to go preach the gospel and call people to repent. That's what He tells them to do. And their job is to take God at His word, unpack their bag, set it all aside, take their wallet out, set it down, and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust You. I'm going to trust You. Wherever you send me, I will go and I'm going to trust that you will provide all that I need to accomplish what you send me to do. And I'm going to operate within the contours or the boundaries of the mission that you've given me. I'm not going to act outside of it. I'm going to take the gospel seriously. I'm going to call sinners to repent with urgency. And I'm going to trust that you will do all you say you will do. That is the life of the Christian. This is the life of repentance. And so my prayer, really, for myself and for you is that we would trust the Lord, lean on His provisions, and do what He's called us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You not only call us to do what seems to be impossible, but You equip us for the task. And so we look to You. We pray, Lord, that You would fill us with all the urgency that this passage demands and that you would fill us with the faith that this passage demands. And let it help us, Lord, 
uh, to exercise what we know, the faith we have in trust, and to carry out the mission and the assignment you've given us to do. And we do it, Lord, for your glory. Amen.